If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 19, as we continue our study through the Word. You remember last time how we watched as Jesus and the disciples departed from the upper room and headed over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you'll remember that Jesus has the eight disciples and has them stay outside and the three come in with Jesus and Jesus goes little ways with them, asks them to stop and to pray, and then Jesus enters into his agony, and three times he comes back. They keep falling asleep, and the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And and you remember that Jesus sees the torches and the lanterns of those that have come to arrest him, led by Judas Iscariot, and You remember that Jesus steps forwards and asks whom they are seeking, and they said, we are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. You'll remember that they fall down. The majesty, the authority, the power of Christ in that moment. They regather themselves, and Jesus asks them again, whom are you seeking? And they declare Jesus of Nazareth, and He again states, I am. I'm the one that you want. Let them go. And we see Christ protecting his disciples all the way to the end. You remember that Peter picks up his sword and chops off Malchus's ear and the Lord heals Malchus and covers Peter's sin. You remember they bound Jesus then and, and they bring him to the house of Annas. And you remember that Peter didn't have the ability to gain access into the house of Caiaphas who was the official high priest. And John tells us that there was another disciple that helped Peter get into the courtyard of the high priest's house. And and you remember that there was a servant girl that looked at Peter and said, you are not one of those who follow after him, are you? And Peter denies that, that he even knows Jesus. And and continues to warm himself there at the fires of the enemy. Beginning in verse 19, it tells us the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. There were two things that Annas wanted to know. He wanted to know about those who were following him. And he also wanted to know about the doctrine that Jesus was teaching. He was interested in the influence that Christ had and and in verse 20 Jesus answered him I spoke openly to the world I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet and in secret I have said nothing why do you ask me ask those who have heard me what I said to them 
Indeed, they know what I said. And here again, Jesus talks about how open he was in his ministry. That Jesus wasn't teaching one thing publicly and then secretly discussing anything else. He came to set up the kingdom of God. He was clear about that. The invitation to follow him was for everybody. And, and so there was no exclusivity. And I want you to know that Annas once again asked about his doctrine and his disciples. And notice that Jesus never talks about his disciples just simply about what he said. And here again, we see the Lord just covering the disciples, protecting the, the disciples. And to me, that's so significant because not only was Jesus protecting his disciples, then Jesus protects his disciples today. Jesus is protecting you. He has got his uh, arms uh, safely around us and, and he intercedes and he steps forwards and and that protecting care of the Lord, how comforting it is to know that he is protecting me today, that he is protecting you today. And when he had said these things, verse 22, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? We see here that According to the Jewish law, you were not uh, to uh, induce a person into self-accusation. And secondly, it's wrong to hit an unconvicted person. And here we see them just breaking the law over and over and over again. Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Jesus asks them, for what reason? Why did you strike me? If I've done something wrong, tell me what I did wrong. And if not, if I've not done anything wrong, why do you strike me? Verse 24, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And and so we see that uh, Annas doesn't get the information that he is looking for as a sheep before his shearers. So he answered them not a word. Caiaphas uh, now receives uh, in Christ and, and we see that the religious leaders knew that they had no grounds for charging Jesus so they now try to build evidence against him. They assemble false witnesses to come forth and to make accusations against Jesus there at the house of Caiaphas. And and so Peter now is in the courtyard. He is warming his hands, and Jesus is now brought to the house of Caiaphas. And, And so up above on the porch, the outer courtyard is visible down below, and And this is where the trial is taking place while Peter is below in the courtyard warming his hands. In verse 25 it says, Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, and therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. Again, 
Peter was asked a question expecting this negative response. You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And, and he denies. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied again and immediately a rooster crowed. I wonder what went through Peter's mind and through his heart when as he is denying that he even knows in Jesus that now suddenly he hears the rooster. In verse 28, John jumps all the way to Pilate. He skips over the meeting in the early morning of the Sanhedrin to ratify the charge against uh, Jesus. There were six trials that Jesus will undergo, three religious and three secular. He is first brought to Annas, then he's brought to Caiaphas, and then he stands before the Sanhedrin. And then the crack of dawn, he is brought to Pilate. Pilate's first uh, interrogation of Jesus, and then he sends him to Herod, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate again. So we have six trials all together before Jesus is crucified. There is great animosity between the chief priests and Pilate. Pilate was a frustrated leader. He had wanted a large and important governorship and instead he was relegated to Israel and Jerusalem. He had sought to be appointed by Caesar to greatness and and he despised the position that he had been put into and and so he took that out uh, on the the Jews themselves and and there was intentional agitation that Pilate had been responsible for caused great inflammation of hardships and relationships twice the the Jews had already complained to Caesar about Pilate and wanting him to be removed as their governor and and so there was a two strikes already here and and now the the religious leaders come to Pilate and and they want a favor from him. They want Pilate to execute Jesus. Now, I want you to know that that while the Jews were allowed to govern themselves underneath the Roman rule, that they were not allowed capital punishment. And so in order to have somebody put to death, they would have to have the, the Romans certify that and then execute them. But the Jews hated the Romans, so they never would bring their own to the Romans to have them executed. When the religious leaders show up and want to turn Jesus over to Pilate, Pilate instantly now raises an eyebrow. What's going on? What is happening here? 
This is not the normal course of action. And then they led Jesus from Caiaphas, verse 28, to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against uh, this man? And so here we see that, that it is uh, ironic that they didn't want to defile themselves by Jewish law. Entering the house of a Gentile would cause a Jewish person to be ceremonial defiled. And, and it is interesting that these leaders are concerned with ritual uncleanness while they are planning murder. <laughs> they answered and said, if he were not an evildoer, we would have not delivered him up to you. We see their reply shows the hostility that exists between them. And then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. And therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. So they bring Jesus to Pilate and tell him, we want you to judge him. And Pilate says, you judge him yourself. And they say, we have, and he's deserving of death. And we can't put him to death. We want you to put him to death. And now Pilate uh, is going to inquire, what is it that he's guilty of that he should be put to death? It had been prophesied in the scriptures that the Messiah would die. The typical way that the Jews would put someone to death would be by stoning. And stoning breaks bones. When you crush a person with big rocks, the bones are broken. But it was said, the prophecy was that the Messiah, not a bone would be broken in his body. We see also in John's gospel that Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And, and here prophesying again his death. In verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Luke's gospel tells us in greater detail the three charges that the Jews brought to Pilate. Number one, that he was subverting the nation, leading the nation astray. Number two, that he was telling people not to pay their taxes to Caesar. And number three, that he was claiming to be a king. And so Pilate zeroed in on the claim of Jesus being a, a king. He asked it because Jesus didn't look like this revolutionary or a, a criminal. And when Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? 
Jesus responds by asking him, are you asking on your own accord or did others tell you this concerning me? To the Romans, a king means a political rival. When he is assessing Jesus, he is saying, are you a, a rival to the Roman Empire? Are you seeking now to, to rise uh, up against the, the Roman Empire? Are you speaking for yourself, Jesus asks him, about my kingship, or are you listening to what other people are saying? And Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? We see here that Pilate again is telling Jesus, Your own nation is turning you over to me. What have you done that you have made everybody so mad at you <laughs> that your own people are turning you over to me? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus tells Pilate that he has no need to fear a political insurrection. He's not a, a zealot or a revolutionary. He says that his kingdom is not from here. Its source was not from men's acts of violence, one nation rising up and overthrowing another, but instead it was a new birth from heaven which transfers a person into the kingdom of God. And Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born. And for this cause I came, I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He's asked directly, are you a king? And Jesus in his own words says, I am a king. Jesus is not just a king. He is king of kings. And he is Lord of lords. And he will rule and reign in righteousness forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And when he is asked, point blank, he answers directly. And he says to him that he has come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And, and Pilate said to him, what is in truth? What is truth? You see, to Pilate, Rome was the truth. The Roman Empire was the truth. And so, what are you, what are you talking about? What, what is truth? Pilate represents the, the world, the unsaved, challenging the authority of, of the knowability of truth. Today, in our culture, it's the very exact same thing. What is truth? When I was young, it was simple. Right and wrong was clear. God is the author of 
our morality and the Ten Commandments, they, they are the basic laws of righteousness, easy and simple. But our culture started to turn and pretty soon those Ten Commandments that were in schools were taken down. No longer was right and wrong becoming so clear. There was an attempt and still is, to remove God from our culture so that the moral standard that God decrees can be removed from our culture, thus enabling everybody to do whatever it is that they want in their own eyes. They move the moral source from God to within a person. Whatever you believe suddenly becomes truth. In schools today, they teach our children that truth is not objective, but it's subjective, situational ethics. There is no declarative source of truth in our world. This is what our children are being taught today. It is relativism. It's a postmodernism that now tells us that you are the one that decides what's right for you. And you hear these phrases, well, that's your truth, but your truth isn't my truth, as if truth is subjective. <laughs> there is not your truth and my truth. There is your experience and my experience, but experience is not in truth. Truth is universal. Jesus is the truth. And the truth means what is really real. And Jesus came to reveal what's really real. What is absolute. What is concrete. What is true for you and true for me and true forever. Eternal truth. And Pilate here is standing before eternal truth asking what is truth. What is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. And he seeks to let Jesus go. But they threaten Pilate. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. And they throw Caesar's name into the equation knowing that twice already they have gone to Caesar, asking Caesar to remove Pilate. And now, where they came smiling, they begin to show their teeth now. In questioning Jesus, he finds that Jesus is... A Galilean's ministry was in Galilee. And Herod is the ruler over the region of Galilee. And Herod, who is normally, his residence is at Tiberias at the Sea of Galilee, is in Jerusalem for the feast. And, and so Jesus now is pushed over to Herod by Pilate as Pilate is seeking to remove himself from the situation. And 
Herod wanted to see in Jesus. This is the same Herod that had put John the Baptist to death. You see, Herod had taken his brother's wife and John the Baptist had said, this is not acceptable. You are breaking the law. And John the Baptist's or Herod's wife didn't take kindly to someone speaking out against their immorality. And so John the Baptist was arrested and put into the fortress dungeon. Herod would go down and talk to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, no doubt, was witnessing to Herod. And, and they were having conversations. And no doubt this made Herod's wife even more upset with John the Baptist. And so a plan was hatched. And Herodias had a daughter, Salome. And she was beautiful. And it was Herod's birthday. And all the nobles were gathered together. And, and so Salome does this seductive dance. And and Herod in front of everybody says, Salome, whatever you want, up to half the kingdom, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Ask whatever you want up to half of the kingdom was just an expression that says, ask what you want, I'll give it to you. And her mother had put her up to it. And when Herod asked her, what would you like? She said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And Herod now had made this commitment in front of all of the nobles that were there. And so he orders the execution of John the Baptist and his head is brought to Salome on a platter and she brings it to her mother. Herod was interested in seeing in Jesus. John the Baptist was a prophet, mighty in spirit, but John the Baptist didn't do any miracles. Herod had heard of the incredible miracles that Jesus was doing and and when Jesus is brought to him, he wants to see Jesus perform some Miracles. He wants to see and be amazed with his power. And, and so he, he invites Jesus into a command performance before him. And Jesus won't even answer him a word. He is silent before Herod. And after Herod has attempted to have Jesus perform for him, he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate, now who thought that he was done with the matter by sending him to Herod, suddenly finds Jesus back into his hands again. And, and the Jews are asking him to execute Jesus. The threats continue. Pilate thinks that he has a way out of this. He doesn't want to capitulate to the Jews. A, just because he doesn't like them. But B, also because he knows that Jesus is an innocent man and he recognizes that they are jealous of Jesus, that, that this is the motive that is behind him. And there's a custom that 
at the Passover that the Romans, in order to ingratiate some goodwill with the Jews, would release one prisoner to them. Pick, and we will deliver one prisoner. Jesus knows, or Pilate knows, that Jesus is popular. You'll remember just a week earlier, Jesus made his triumphal entry and the whole city goes out uh, to meet Jesus, uh, hailing him in a magnificent triumphal parade in. But he recognizes that the religious leaders are trying to railroad Jesus and have him crucified. So if he can bypass the religious leaders and put it out to the people who they want to have delivered uh, uh, the prisoners, they will pick Jesus, no doubt, and Pilate is off the hook. He hasn't given in to the religious leaders, and Jesus is scot-free, and Pilate can now go back to his breakfast. Problem solved. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And he is expecting a, a, a unanimous yes. And then they all cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a, a robber. He was guilty of murder and insurrection Matthew's gospel tells us that it was the chief priests and elders that persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus and so they incite the crowd the crowd follows the religious leaders and you remember that in the other Gospels, this is now where Pilate asks for a, a bowl of water to be brought to him. And he takes the water and he washes his hands and says, I want you to know that I am innocent of this man's blood. And the crowd responds, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And Jesus is turned over the soldiers. For crucifixion. As we close our study here on this 18th chapter, I want to draw our attention for a minute back to verse 27 where it says, And a rooster crowed. A rooster crowed. In Matthew's gospel, it tells us then that in that third denial, the third denial of Jesus, that the servant who John identifies now, this servant that accuses Jesus, <laughs> accuses Peter rather of the of Peter's affiliation with Christ says that it was a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off. 
It is interesting the way that sin has a way of coming back uh, around. In Matthew's gospel, it tells us that this relative now, this servant that makes this third accusation, says, surely you are one of them for your speech betrays you. In our country, we have many different areas uh, that have different accents. They say that people from New York have an accent. That you can tell that they're from New York. <laughs> people from Texas talk a particular way. And, and you say, you're not from Nevada, are you? We can tell you weren't born and raised here, y'all. <laughs> well, the Galileans had a y'all draw. They were the... Uh, the country bumpkins and the, those from Jerusalem, the Jerusalemites were the educated elite uh, of the nation. And and you remember in the first two accusations, right? There is a servant girl that says, you are one of those. And as Peter is cursing his denial, they're hearing his accent now. And it was in his first two denials that now suddenly they are aware that you're not from around here. It is in Mark's gospel that we discover that when the rooster crows, after Peter's third denial, that, that, that is actually the second time that the rooster crows. And that Jesus actually had said that before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. That's interesting to me. Because it, it shows how God gave a warning. When that rooster had crowed the first time, That was the warning. And when I look back in my own life, I see when, <laughs> when I have my heart set on something that isn't the will of God in my life, that God will warn me. God will, will send me warnings telling me that I'm not on the right path, the right right now it's like you you come to yellow lights and and the lord is warning you with a yellow light that the light isn't green <laughs> it's yellow right now it's interesting because i my youngest son is uh, has his learner's permit and i'm teaching him to drive and somehow he got it into his head that when you come to a yellow light it means you hit the gas and you go as fast as you can to get through it before the light turns red. When a yellow light means stop safely before it turns red. And yet I have discovered in my own life that when my heart is 
attached to something that is not God's will in my life that, that those yellow lights I find that I have hit the gas and gone right through them. We have an amazing ability to <laughs> rationalize the, the will of God. It's easy to see in others. It's often hard to see ourselves. It's so clear in my office when people will come in and they are dating a non-believer. And they know that the Word of God says that you're not supposed to date a non-believer. But their heart is attached. And so you hear them say things like, but they're getting close. (laughs) And they're coming to church with me and I think God is using me to get them saved. (laughs) And it's a yellow light. It's a yellow light. What are you doing? And they're hitting the gas and going right through the yellow light. The rooster crows the first time and Peter, get out of there. What are you doing? The Bible tells us that with every temptation that comes to us, that God gives us an avenue of escape. He always gives you a way of escape. You will never be tempted beyond your ability to resist the temptation. God always gives you an avenue of escape. And then Luke's gospel records another interesting detail. That between Peter's second denial and his third denial is an hour. These aren't rapid succession, three denials, bang, 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 and the rooster crows and Peter's done. He denies the Lord twice and then there is an hour pause that God gives him an hour to get his feet back underneath them to, to realize and to remember that the Lord said three times, you got two strikes on you right now. Depart, get away from this situation. The Bible tells us to flee from evil and, and to respond to the leading of the Lord. But Peter stays. Maybe he feels that he's demonstrating his loyalty by staying. And so an hour later, the relative of the servant who Peter had cut off the ear puts the pieces together and now makes the accusation against Peter. And Peter denies it, is cursing up and down. And Luke records for us that while he is still speaking that the rooster crows, while he is swearing that he doesn't even know this man, he doesn't even know what they're talking about, and and as he is speaking, the rooster crows. But Luke also records another detail. That as he is 
swearing that he doesn't know him. And as the rooster crows, Jesus, who is up on the balcony, turns and looks at him and catches his eye. At the moment. I wonder what that look was like. Certainly, Peter will never, ever forget the look in the Lord's eyes. I know if it had been me, the look that would have been in my eyes towards Peter. I told you so. (laughs) But something tells me that wasn't the look in Jesus' eyes. I think it was a look of love. And I think he loved him with his eyes. In the same way that he loved Judas at the Last Supper when he kneels down and washes his Judas' feet as Judas is in the act of betraying him. And he honors Judas and puts him at his right in the hand at that final meal, loving him all the way to the end. And loving Peter, even in the very act of betrayal, denying that he even knows him. Truly the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It says that Peter goes and weeps bitterly. He weeps bitterly. And I want you to know that that his weeping bitterly shows that it wasn't his faith that fails. It wasn't his faith in Jesus that fails. It was his courage that failed. And he is broken. You see, Peter trusted in his own strength. Peter trusted in his courage. He said, even if everybody else would flee, I would never flee. I will lay my life down and die for you. Peter was attesting to his courage, his loyalty, that no matter what the face of danger was, that, that his courage was stronger than his self-preservation. And he swears his allegiance even to death. And, and we see Peter trusting in himself instead of trusting in Christ. You see, It is only the solid bedrock of truth that a person can build their life on. Jesus is that cornerstone that will never fail in our life. And when you build it on self, when you build it on your own strength, your own attributes, you are building your life on shifting sand. Emotions shift, they change, they move. Your interests, your tastes change. They move. But truth never moves. It is immovable. And and when you build your life on sand, Jesus said that when the storms come, that sand is going to shift and it's going to crack the foundation. When the foundation is cracked, then the building is uninhabitable. It is true of a building, but Jesus wasn't speaking of a building. He was speaking about your life. And when your life is built on anything other than the truth, 
then it will ultimately crack and fall apart at some point. Peter never imagined that his courage could ever fail him. And yet, in the moment, we see crumbles. And he goes and he weeps bitterly, so disappointed in himself and his failure. He always saw himself as loyal and courageous. And now suddenly, underneath the pressure, he he fails and he weeps bitterly. We are going to see Peter being restored. Peter thinks he's done. He's failed the Lord. That's it. The Lord could never, ever use him ever again. And so oftentimes we have these Peter moments in our lives where we have hurt others. We have failed in commitments and fidelity and allegiance and integrity and honesty. And, and we have hurt others in our past and our And we can feel like God could never have a future for us, a a plan to use us. And yet I want you to know that that Peter is restored, that he ultimately is going to be the one that preaches the very first sermon on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people come and give their lives to the Lord and the the church age is born here. And and Peter is the one that is going to unlock the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the Samaritans. And, And the gospel is going to go forward. Jesus forgives Peter. We're going to come to that forgiveness. And Peter is restored. And Peter is used mightily. But I want you to know, for the rest of his life, every single time he would hear a rooster crow, he would be reminded of his failure. The enemy loves to continue to remind us of our failures. But the Word of God tells us that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgetting those things that are behind, I look forward to the upward high calling of Christ Jesus. God isn't concerned with your past. It's forgiven. It's washed. It's cleansed. And And I think so oftentimes we are forgiven by God, but we can have a hard time forgiving ourselves and we can hold ourselves back from that upward high call of Christ and Jesus when when who the Son sets free is what? Free from your past. Free from your mistakes. Free from the chains that once held you. You are free. You are forgiven. You are washed in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You are a child of the King. You have a future and a hope. And God calls you to keep on going. Keep on walking. Keep on stepping in. Yesterday, we may not have had fidelity to the Lord. But today is a new day. And we can walk in union with Him this day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Don't ever let your past define you. Don't let your mistakes 
hold you back. You're a child of the king. Your identity is in Christ. And you will live in eternal glory with the Lord. Press on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And God, the way in which you forgive us, your grace, your love, your mercy. And Lord, we ask that you would just do a great work in our hearts and in our lives. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.